Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton, your host and president of Morton Group LLC, a national consulting firm based in Chicago. Last week's midterm elections were vital in the future of the country at the local, state, and federal levels, with many election deniers running to office and a so-called red wave, which was thankfully more of a steady trickle. The individuals voted into office will determine the movement, or lack thereof, in U.S. legislature and politics at a time when the country is more divided than ever, making this one of our most important elections in many years. Several issues brought people to the polls last week, from reproductive and abortion rights to equity and voting rights. Gerrymandering, the manipulation of the boundaries of a district or ward to favor one party or socioeconomic class, has occurred across the country since the last election. This practice has historically been used to suppress votes from certain communities, which we know has a detrimental impact on low-income communities and communities of color. At times, it can feel like taking part in the voting process feels obsolete especially when it feels like we are choosing the best among the worst options. However, we know that race equity is all about power sharing, and those who often try to quiet our voices aim to make us believe we are powerless. The reality of democracy is that each of our voices matters. On this episode of Gathering Ground, I sat down with three phenomenal women who use their role and position as elected officials to ensure that their constituents feel the power in their voices and have space to use them to make change happen for their communities. I was joined by Illinois State Representative for the 14th District, Kelly Cassidy, Chicago Alderwoman Maria Hatton from the 49th Ward, and Minneapolis City Council President Andrea Jenkins. We've talked about some of this election's hot button issues and how citizens can participate in moving the needle and making a change in their communities. Thank you all and welcome to Gathering Ground. Um, I wanna start with you, Andrea, if I might, and just tell us a little bit about how you got to the council in uh, Minneapolis. And you're, you're Chicago, you're from Chicago, which I love. So tell us a little bit about your, your background and how you got to this role. Well, you know, as you mentioned, Mary, so I, I grew up in Chicago. I grew up in the 1960s, a time of political sort of, power in Chicago. And, you know, certainly Chicago has always been on the nation's uh, mind around electoral politics, but uh, Black nationalism was really um, a, a powerful motivator for me. When I was in first grade, I met Gwendolyn Brooks. I'm a, I'm a poet. She came to my classroom as the Poet Laureate. Uh, when I was 14, I met a brother named Haki Matabuti, uh, the founder of the Institute of Positive Education. And so I've just been like really, I think all throughout my, my life and growing up had this sort of swirling political headset around me. Um, I remember it as a sophomore at Lindblom High School, uh, we walked out of school because we wanted to have a uh, an assembly for Black History Week, uh, Maria. It wasn't always a month. It used to be a, it's just one week, but uh, we wanted to have an assembly 
the principal said, no, we walked out of school and we got our assembly. So that was the first time that I really did some political activism as a, you know, I, I came to Minneapolis to go to college, University of Minnesota, and then subsequently began to work for the county, Hennepin County, as a uh, vocational counselor. So I was helping moms um, get back on their feet. They were receiving what, you know, I was I was there at the transition from uh, AFDC assistance to needy families to TANF which is temporary assistance to, to needy families. And, um, you know, I think that was probably the worst thing that could have happened to Black women since slavery. So I had this first-hand view of how policy impacts community. And that prompted me to want to go back to graduate school. I got a, a master's degree in community development and began to realize that politics is a... Uh, one part of the stool to change community and uh, got a job as a policy aide working for two different um, city council members representing the ward that I now represent, the eighth ward. And so I knew all the players in the eighth ward. I knew the people, I knew the issues. Um, and in 2016, when our country sadly elected an orange TV reality star, um, you know, I, I thought it's time for me to, to step into the arena. Um, fortunately, and, and this doesn't happen very often, but my former boss, um, cisgender white woman, had three terms. She probably could still be in office to this day. But she decided to step down and create space for a Black woman to run for office. And I was that Black woman. And here we are. Um, one interesting part to that um, uh, story, both my predecessors were vice presidents of the city council, as was I in my last term. But... I was the one who was able to ascend to the presidency. So uh, just a little interesting tidbit. Absolutely. Congre oh, just congratulations. So many times over. It's huge. We are we're so excited for you, proud of you. And um, yeah, one of just tons of support your way. Um, thank thank you. you. Thank you. So uh, Kelly, why don't we share your your story? How did how did you get here? Um, well, I, I grew up <clears throat> as a first generation kid in a pretty politically active family. Um, my father used to walk us to the polling place and tell us uh, his arrival story and remind us of the debt that, that we owe via him. And um, my, I joke that uh, of, of the seven of us, I'm uh, one of two that aren't teachers, everyone else became teachers. Um, one went into uh, the military and here I am doing my service in a different way. Um, I moved to uh, Illinois, to Chicago in the early nineties and I uh, had the great fortune to get to work with, with you, Mary, at the National Organization for Women um, as my first big break here. Um, and that work, that organizing training from the amazing Sue Purrington um, remains my North Star to this day. It, it informs how I do my work. It informs how I work in coalition. 
Um, and it certainly informs my tendency to take on fights that maybe others wouldn't. But I just feel really blessed to be doing this work in a place where, and in a district where they really demand that level of um, fight. So I'm, I'm just really blessed. And it's been 10, 11 years now? 11 years. I was just reelected to my seventh term, which yeah. feels impossible. I can almost cry. That's incredible, Kelly. It's it just it's hard to believe it's been that long. I mean, I remember really when you first ran and boy, when they say time moves along. Like, yeah. it's just hard well, to and it's time long. really does move along. Of 118, I'm going to be 19 or 20 in seniority next year. Moving on up, Kelly. That's incredible. That's incredible. <laughs> Maria, tell us about your start. Why are, why are you sitting here? And, and you, like Kelly, are someone I knew before you ran for office. Yeah. Um, uh, we had a lot of fun working with Morton Group. Um, so I come from a nonprofit civic engagement background. And I'll say, I think of a definitive moment for me of how I ended up here um, was even before that. And it was just through the person experience of um, the struggles faced during the housing crisis, right, of 2008. Um, so I um, am originally from Columbus, Ohio, but uh, found myself in Chicago after an AmeriCorps position, um, looking to, to get engaged and involved and knowing I wanted to be in civil service. Um, but the housing crisis, so being in a position where um, I had to organize to keep my home, um, it was my first personal organizing experience with my 18 uh, other households in the building where um, I went from somebody, I say like, you know, I was in grad school, I was working full time. Uh, I was a regular voter. I read the news. I volunteered at a local nonprofit. I felt like I was a really engaged, uh, you know, lowercase C citizen, right? And then when the economy collapsed and when the housing market crisis happened and my neighbors and I were left with like no money and a half finished building, and we were looking for answers, I realized how little I knew about government. Um, so that really launched me on a path where professionally, I've spent more than a decade working with communities in, in Minneapolis, in St. Paul, um, in Jackson, Mississippi, in, in Baltimore, in Oakland, um, in Greensboro, North Carolina, in Denver, um, and here in Chicago, working with community groups and local government to help us understand our public budgets and design these processes so we can have local decision-making power. And uh, that I think inevitably just led to public office, right? You do enough things like that and people are like, you should run. Um, so that's really um, kind of the path to how I got here. Um, and it's been, um, uh, it's in my first term, so I'm still in my first term. Um, so I look forward to being where, uh, Andrea and Kelly are someday. All right. Thank you so much. So we have just had an extraordinary election across the country and here in Illinois and in Minneapolis, and we want to get your perspective, your reactions. Were you surprised? What, what are you thinking in, in light of what happened just a couple of days ago uh, in terms of when we're recording uh, this podcast? This is a couple of days after the election. We still have some results that we're waiting to come in. But what do you think? And I'm going to start with you, Maria. I'm still I'm still anxiously awaiting. Right. Some of the results. Um, I have to say that um, I wasn't just relieved, but I think proud of Illinois and the results that we saw in Illinois, um, knowing how hard so many of our residents here in the 49th Ward and beyond um, have been working 
not only on this election, but of course, for so much of the legislation that we were fighting to keep, right, leading up to it. So really proud of Illinois. And uh, I'll say pretty excited to see how Michigan was going, too. Um, I'm friends with the lieutenant governor there and was really happy to see that he and uh, and and the governor uh, are going to have, I think, uh, an easier way forward. Wonderful. Andrea, what, what do you think about what's happened across the country and in Minneapolis? Well, you know, I... I too am I'm really excited. I mean, I think here in Minnesota, we reelected our governor. Um, we reelected our attorney general, Keith Ellison, who um, prosecuted, successfully prosecuted Derek Chauvin, the murderer of um, George Floyd. Uh, we elected an out lesbian uh, county attorney uh, who is very progressive and I think will uh, be able to bring forward some new ideas to the county attorney's office, the prosecutor's office. But also we regained control of the House and the Senate in Minnesota. So we actually have control over all forms of government. So I'm kind of giddy. I'm like, we are going to get some really good things done uh, over these next two years. Nationally, I think we did, like, like has been stated, much better than one could have hoped for. I think that we may be able to take control of the Senate. And we have a lot of work to do to make sure that we pull Reverend uh, Warnock back to the Senate. But I think we can do it, particularly without the governor on the ballot. So um, I'm pretty optimistic about the election results from a few days ago and excited to get to work. That's right. There's lots of work to do. Kelly, what are you thinking about all of that? You know, like like both Andrea and Maria, you know, I, I I was hearing all of the doom and gloom leading up to it, but that felt a lot more like narrative than fact. Um, and and so I I was not terrified going into the election, but I was you know anxious as as you should be. Um, I knew we were going to be okay in Illinois. I did not anticipate we were going to be as okay as we are, which is great. You know, we I I. I was terrified about the state Supreme Court races. Um, basically every law I've ever passed gets challenged. And so I was really mindful of what would happen if we lost the majority on our state Supreme Court. And I wouldn't go to bed until I knew we had won one of them. Um, and then lo and behold, we actually uh, expanded our majority on the state Supreme Court. So for someone who does a lot of um, high impact legislation, uh, that's, that's a huge relief. That's like actually getting to keep your toolbox with you. And so that was big, but, you know, uh, you know, looking at Colorado, looking at Arizona, looking at Georgia and other states, you know, literally just sent out a message, get volunteers activated to work, to send postcards to voters in Georgia, um, because, you know, their new election law has really shortened the runway for that runoff election. It's not going to be in the second week of January like it was last time. It's going to be in the first week of, of December. So we've got seconds to turn around and, and try to get folks motivated and remind them of an, uh, that this is coming. So um, lots of work ahead, but uh, definitely a sense of relief. Let's talk about 
some of the issues and topics that, that uh, all of you have uh, been working on and that certainly were of um, a critical nature of, in this recent election. And so we're gonna start with reproductive rights, um, reproductive justice, abortion, which is how I actually came to my activism. I, I walked into Chicago now, which Kelly referenced and um, Maria, I thought that I was, you know, I knew everything there was because I read Ms. and I read Essence Magazine. So I had it down. So I thought. You understand, <laughs> right? You understand. Right, right. exactly. <laughs> um, and so um, I was not actually out when I came to uh, Chicago now and got involved. The first issue I started working on was reproductive rights, which is what we were calling it at that time, as opposed to reproductive justice. Now we are in a place where we never thought we would be, you know, with Roe v. Wade being overturned. And as we can see from the recent election, this was the number two issue in all the polls that I saw. Um, this was the number two issue that most people were concerned about and angry about. This got people to the polls in a way that I, I think people, I know I, I actually was surprised by. What is your take on what happened around reproductive rights? I'm gonna start there. And then I wanna talk about some action items. So Kelly, why don't you start? I know that you have uh, really been working on this issue for a long time. Uh, and actually um, you were, I think one of the sponsors for the 2019 Reproductive Health Act, is that correct? Yeah, I was the lead sponsor on RHA um, and chief co on SB, House Bill 40 before that and, and on um, the parental notice uh, of abortion repeal. Uh, I was co-sponsor on that, but the RHA was my baby. And uh, th this has been my life's work. You know, I joke that uh, I was born across state lines because the hospital in my hometown wouldn't give my mother the care she needed. And she had to cross state lines to give birth to me. And uh, so I come by it pretty honest. Um, so we have been working in, in, in Illinois for several years, in spite of folks telling us we were being hysterical, um, and, and, you know, our predictions of the end of Roe, uh, being, you know, some sort of fantasy. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I will say I've gotten some good apologies from colleagues, uh, in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, a, a handful of them were self-aware enough to realize that they should say something. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, we, we built a good firewall with those three bills, the three-legged stool, you know, we, House Bill 40 took care of the funding access and the trigger law, obviously. The Reproductive Health Act- Well, say what really, that is, for some of our listeners yeah, so, know the trigger laws. Sure, so we had a, a, an array of laws that were problematic, including what's referred to as a trigger law, which said that if Roe v. Wade were ever overturned, abortion would be immediately criminalized. So it was really critically important that we get that out of our laws. Um, and that was in 2018. Mm -hmm. um, and we did that in conjunction with allowing for um, Medicaid coverage uh, for abortion in, uh, for, for people in Illinois. That was great, but what remained in our books was first of all, abortion was addressed within the criminal code, not within the health code. And it also, in, the, the laws around abortion included all of the things that over the years had been enjoined by the courts. And, and you know, keeping with the theme of you think you know, and then you realize what you, how much you don't know. I never even realized that when a court enjoins a law, it's not stricken, it's just there. And so we had all sorts of restrictions like spousal consent and waiting periods and um, just a whole array of things that had been enjoined by our courts 
on the same basis that Roe was decided. So based on that, that belief in a fundamental right to privacy. So if at the end of Roe, when Dobbs came down, it is not, it's very possible that all of those restrictions that we had litigated over the years and weren't ever enforced in Illinois would have risen like zombie laws and been uh, an issue for us to deal with. So we had to get rid of all of those extraneous laws. Um, we established abortion as a fundamental right in the state of Illinois. Um, we, we, we actually, I should say this more correctly, we established the full array of re reproductive health care as a fundamental right in Illinois. Um, and that really established that firewall. We got rid of the parental notice law um, the following year. But what we haven't done and what we are working on now is addressing the unprecedented times we're in where people are being threatened with prosecution for crossing state lines, where doctors in Illinois are being uh, threatened with civil and criminal actions for providing services to people from other states. So we wanna make sure that we put into place the protections for those providers, whether we're talking about licensed healthcare providers or the various supporting uh, groups who are providing service like the Chicago Abortion Fund or Midwest Access Coalition or Elevated Access, where they could be prosecuted um, by, or attempted to be prosecuted um, by, by other states for performing services that are perfectly legal in our state. So we wanna make sure that we put those protections in place, that we make sure that, that we can handle the influx of patients. We're anticipating about 30,000 patients a year and that there are enough doctors and, and healthcare providers to provide the services. A lot of work to do. And it's a lot. Um, it, it looks as though legislators um, in, in states such as North Dakota, South Dakota, Wisconsin, and Iowa, right, have tried to ban abortion. However, Minnesota became a sanctuary state. So in your state, Andrea, your mayor uh, signed an executive order making Minneapolis a sanctuary state for reproductive health care and abortion. In September, of course, we know the Chicago City Council voted on a similar ordinance. So Andrea and Maria, can you talk a little bit about what this has meant for um, the citizens in, in your, your wards and your, yes, in your wards, I would say, and what response you've gotten from the community since this has happened. Andrea, why don't you start? Yeah, I'll start. You know, I, I will just kind of start out at your initial premise that this was a issue that brought people to the polls, right? And I think, you know, people don't understand or people don't really fully recognize that reproductive justice is actually a trans issue too. Absolutely. Um, a transgender uh, justice issue as uh, so many uh, trans and gender non-conforming people get their health care through organizations like Planned Parenthood. Um, I, I think it's somewhere around 40% of trans women uh, seek health care from Planned Parenthood. But also people don't fully understand and recognize that trans men still give birth to children. And so, um, so not only did the Dobbs decision impact 50% of the population that identifies as a woman, but also more broadly, the transgender community, and it's about autonomy over one's own body, right? And so, um, Many trans and gender non-conforming people were energized 
to say, no, we need to stand up and make sure that we can preserve our own autonomy over our own bodies. Um, here in our community, people are really proud that we are a sanctuary state that welcomes people from other communities to seek reproductive health care and abortions. Um, and our we just had a budget hearing today where you know my constituents were here at City Hall asking us to please budget to support more security at our facilities that provide reproductive health care. And so uh, I think our community is really supportive of people coming from other communities seeking reproductive um, health care. And I'm proud to be able to move that kind of legislation forward. You know, I have to say, every time I hear someone with a commercial talking about reproductive rights, reproductive justice, and talking about a woman's right to choose, I sort of like, you know, I, I cringe a bit and I'm, I'm like, do I need to write a note? Do I need to, how do we get people to start to change the language? Um, and it's from happening from folks who are, you know, progressive, yes. quote unquote, get it, yet you have made another commercial where you only are talking about a woman's right to choose. And, and certainly when we were starting in this work years ago, you know, and I used to show up at the clinic door, um, you know, uh, as many of us did, Kelly, right before the aunties got there to put glue in the locks. Um, oh, my goodness. Those were the days. Um, it, it is different now. And we know better. Right. So we have to do better. And it's just very frustrating that groups who are at a national level have not changed their language. And I I'm curious to know, um, other than writing a letter and pointing it out and is there any other work that we should be doing around getting the language changed so that it is more inclusive? Because it also is an opportunity to really get people to understand what it means to be trans, which people still, as you know, don't. And this is an opportunity to do some of that education. Would you speak to that a little bit, Andrea? Well, you know, I, it's really critically important that we do uh, advocate and continue. I think continuing to, to bring it up in these kinds of dialogues. I mean, I, I'm looking at the screen and everybody has their pronouns on their names, right? That wasn't the case even five years ago. And so continuously having that dialogue, continuously bringing up these, these issues and concerns you know, I was just in Washington, D.C. last weekend and, you know, I heard from the new executive director at the Human Rights Campaign, uh, Kelly Robinson, who is from the reproductive justice movement, uh, having worked at Planned Parenthood prior to coming to HRC. And so I know that she is all in no exceptions around uh, trans inclusivity and gets it. And so it's going to start at the top of those national organizations. Um, Planned Parenthood has a, uh, as you all know, um, Alexis McGill is, you know, running things and, and really gets it. Uh, and so I think those types of um, systemic changes can now begin to occur and that will eventually trickle down to uh, the broader population. 
absolutely. In in the debate over the RHA, we had a three and uh, a half RHA hour. RHA is oh, RHA. sorry, the Reproductive Health Act. Um, <laughs> where in addition, it was there was a lot. So you know, I got one of these. So I, I but we also degendered all of the language in our law, and they were obsessed. There was an, an almost 40 minute segment of the hearing where one Darren Bailey, who just lost his election for governor, um, asked me over and over and over again. He would read a line where it would say pregnant person or a person who can become pregnant or whatever. And why did you remove woman? And I would respond anyone with a uterus can get pregnant. And it really it became this almost comical back and forth where I just sat there totally stone faced. Anyone with a uterus can become pregnant. Anyone with a uterus can become pregnant. I was just trying to bore him into stopping at that point, but they're obsessed. Yes, absolutely. And that, and that was in 2019, right? Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. nicely done. Uh, Maria, what are you hearing from your, your community with regard to uh, reproductive rights, abortion, reproductive justice, and uh, certainly understanding now that uh, city councils made a move to become a sanctuary state? We are, especially being a part of uh, the 14th district and having uh, uh, Rep Cassidy as our representative, we're in a really good space where I'll say that, you know, from from the moment the Dobbs decision happened, there's a lot of mobilization. Um, And there's just amazing things you can do when we all work in concert, right, in the same direction. And so uh, myself, uh, several other older people in city council, um, uh, Mayor Lightfoot's team and several nonprofit organizations, right? Chicago Abortion Fund, Midwest Access Coalition, um, Planned Parenthood, Illinois, and Chicago Foundation for Women and Equality, Illinois. Um, I just got oh, and to ACLU work, was involved uh, too. Yeah. Yes, and ACLU to to create using the basis of our uh, sanctuary city ordinance um, that we've done for immigrants and refugees in our city. Um, to use the base of that to create in uh, Chicago, to create legislation for us to be a sanctuary city as well. So we worked together. uh, First, the mayor did an executive order, and then we finalized legislation to not just protect um, abortion, but the full suite, as Kelly mentioned, right? This is really about broadening this and helping people understand this is just like what reproductive health rights should look like for every person, Um, right? Like this is like basic health care. Um, and so being able to move really quickly um, through, a, through a short period of time um, was made possible because of such great organizations um, and people ready to mobilize. So that, that was a clear indicator of this being an important issue that people, it's not just, hey, we're willing to fight to defend it, but as, as we're hearing, right, um, and as you guys have been a part of, people have been fighting for this for years and, and we're not not just are we not going back, but we're fighting actively to expand, right? So um, really a proud moment, I think, for the city of Chicago um, working together for that effort. Wonderful. Thank you. Let's talk um, about another issue. The number one issue uh, in the exit polls uh, for the election was around inflation. And I I guess my question to you is, do you think this is uh, really coming together as a partisan issue? And what control, if any, do states have over inflation of household necessities at the, at the local level? Can you talk a little bit about that? And I'm going to ask you, Andrea, to start us off. I'll start us off. I mean, you know, I, I don't think states have that 
big of a role in inflation. I mean, I, I really think that the sort of narrative around inflation is that, you know, it was created with Joe Biden. But we, we know that the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, and just quite frankly, corporate greed is the reason why we are experiencing the outrageous levels of inflation and price gouging. It's really unconscionable. If we go and look at the earnings of these corporations, they are at record levels. And every year we continuously say that corporate earnings are record le- like there is no let up on this at all. And so the narrative that politicians have a role to play is really um, a misnomer and it's really unfortunate. And it takes the onus off the real enemies to the people in my mind. That said, what we can do is universal basic income for people. We could do universal health care for people. We could do free education for people. And that would put more dollars in people's pockets and working families' pockets. And then we would be able to afford these prices as well as, um, so I heard somebody talk about coalition building. Uh, Kelly, I'm ready to start the drive for 25. Nobody can live on $15 an hour in this country. So it's got to be the minimum, minimum wage needs to be $25 an hour. That's what governments can do. Mm-hmm. Kelly? Um, well, you know, a lot of, of, of what Andrea was saying in terms of, you know, I, I would argue that in some ways this isn't truly fair to define as inflation because it is price gouging. Mm-hmm. Um, in, inflation is when things are going up out of control because the, the, the providers of goods and services can't keep up and can't make any money at the prices they're getting. This is price gouging. Um, and I, I believe, quite frankly, this is an issue, you, know, you talked about it being the number one issue in the polls. What we've seen over these last few cycles, polls ain't what they used to be. And very often they are used as a message driver, not mm-hmm. as a message predictor. Mm-hmm. And I believe that this is a great example of that where, you know, the, the other side is using their polling to create issues where they don't exist. They're creating the perception that this is something that your state or local government has control over. And, and Andrea made some great suggestions of things that what we can do. You know, we at, at the state level suspended the gas tax. We suspended, you know, we did some sales tax holidays. We can do, we can nibble around the edges. Um, but until we're really doing government right, and that is, you know, taxing corporations appropriately, that is providing services and supports to the people that they need so that they're not living in poverty and having to make terrible choices uh, every day between whether you can take the bus to work or not. All of those pieces, when we when we do that, that's what we can really do to get inflation under control. Um, but I would say that in, in, this, in this election cycle, in inflation and gas tax kind of things. Those were those were inventions by the Republicans to try to, to suppress Democratic votes. And Maria, what are you hearing in your in your ward? Are, are people coming to you as though you have some control over this and you can change it and you can you can fix it? No, um, with the exception of one area, and that's rents. Mm. Right? It's Talk rents. Yeah. Um, 
Rogers Park, um, which is the neighborhood um, that takes up most of the 49th Ward, Rogers Park in Westridge, um, is just historically been an affordable place to live on the north side of Chicago. And while it's relatively, right, compared to the rest of the city, still an affordable place to live, um, I hear too many stories of people um, not being able to afford their rents here anymore. And it's not just the increase in rent, it's the way that housing providers have been filling in lots of little fees, right? Um, higher rates for application fees, um, these move-in fees, non-refundable things, they're not using security deposits anymore. The cost of actually um, living someplace and then securing the next place is very hard. Um, their practices of letting people apply, um, knowing that they don't have the minimum credit score that they're going to accept, but not telling them after the fact they are like just totally uh, milking people who don't already have a lot of money, right? Our dollars are not going as far. So that's the number one issue that I hear. And I'll just say, um, this is where, um, as you mentioned it as like an um, election issue, right? On these exit polls. Um, this is where I'm most disappointed in our Democratic Party and our national politics. Um, if they really cared about the base of people in our cities, they would address this issue. Um, letting letting the, the Fed just do what they want. I mean, I don't think I've seen or understood more clearly what the Fed does and what their position and goal is than I have in these last several months and listening to these statements from, from Jerome Powell of like, we're going to increase unemployment, right? We're going to increase uh, the cost of housing. We're going to make it so hard for you to afford to live that you won't be able to spend any money or take out any new debt. We're going to make it favorable for employers to lay off people. And we're going to make it, uh, we're changing the market in order to decrease inflation. And thinking about how um, we're letting, because I say letting, because the Fed is separate, but our national leadership is letting our economy be determined by the inflation instead of serving the people. Um, so, you know, Andrew talks about, you know, the drive for 25. Um, we're going to be stuck in this cycle of just kind of moving the goalpost to increase our minimum wages, which is not a bad thing, but we need to address the costs, right? It's, it's unconscionable and it's not just price gouging. Um, it is um, a lack of appropriate taxation of corporations. It's our system starved of money. And it is a slap in the face to working people to have to see, well, we're going to raise interest rates because you have too much money in savings, mm -hmm. because you're trying to buy too many things, because you're shifting the power dynamic in our economy. And these poor corporations now have to pay you higher wages because you're competitive. Um, so I'm absolutely disgusted with the way that we've been handling this and just acting like it's this hands-off thing of, oh, we can't, we can't control it, right? Um, national leaders need to step up and do better on this. And Andrea, in Minneapolis, what are you seeing with regard to housing and, and trying to have some cost containment? Are you seeing similar uh, concerns as raised by Maria? Oh yeah, St. Paul just passed a rent stabilization policy and Minneapolis, we are, we are working on one. Um, you know, and 
Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if you guys recall, I'm sure you do, in 08, I think it was, the rent is too damn high. Um, and that has been the, the mantra in um, the Twin Cities. You know, it, it's a combination of things, right? We don't have enough housing. Um, we don't have enough affordable housing. Um, and so one of the things that we tried to do here in Minneapolis, we passed a, um, a housing policy that eliminated zoning requirements in the city of Minneapolis. And so, you know, we, we talk about redlining and single family homes and how that phenomenon really um, um, sort of created areas where only certain people could live. And then subsequently, you know, we had some housing policy changes, the, the Housing Act, um, Fair Housing Act in the 70s. But if we look at those patterns, uh, it's still the same. I mean, and I, I drive around Chicago, I mean, you know, people still, Rich people still live around Lake Michigan and, you know, poor people still live in the west side of Chicago and the south side where it was redlined for, for people to live. And so we eliminated those zoning requirements so that we can build more multifamily housing uh, throughout the city. It was a big policy shift, but that alone, you know, it's going to take time to build those houses. And so we need to come up with some solutions ahead of that. And like I said, right now we're working on developing a rent stabilization policy that hopefully, and, and I, I get squeamish about it because I don't want to create more burdens for renters in our communities um, because we know what um, particularly the corporate landlords do is they just pass those increases down to the renters and, and subsequently exasperates the very problem we were trying to solve. So it's a conundrum, which is why I really think that universal basic income has to be a part of the, the, the solution. Can you explain a little bit about what that is for our listeners? Certainly, uh, universal basic income is when we just provide a base level of income to people who meet certain income requirements on a monthly basis. In Stockton, California, they were piloting just giving $500 to low-income families to help them meet their needs. We're piloting some of that here in Minneapolis with our American Rescue Act funds, but how do we sustain and expand that program beyond that? And one way is fairer taxation. One of the things that I'm really disappointed about, Maria, in federal government is, so during the pandemic, all of the office buildings, apparently people were working at home. I see you guys are all working at home now. I am downtown in the office, just want to say, <laughs> but 
you know, these office buildings, I, I, I never knew that their taxes was based on occupancy. So now nobody's working in those buildings. They get lower taxes. We don't have lower costs. <laughs> so who's gonna, who has to pay those taxes? So we had to pass a tax levy that is going to be really painful for a lot of low income people. So we need to change how we are funding our communities. Property taxes cannot be the only uh, means of funding our communities, funding education. It's no secret that why we have problem schools is because we have low-income communities and that rely on property taxes to fund the schools. So consequently, if there's lower property tax, then you're gonna have lower resources for the schools. Um, those things have to change. Absolutely. These are just a few of the uh, critical topics that have been raised um, and often get a spotlight around the election, around election time. However, as you all know, and you've been, you're working on this all the time, all year round. Um, I, I, you know, as I said, this is going to go very fast and I want to end with just two questions. I'd love for you both to tell me, for all of you to tell me, what is one of the most fulfilling and satisfying moments in your career so far? Maria, we're going to start with you. That's a good idea because it's going to be easy for me since it's been short, right? Um, <laughs> um, you know what? I'll say um, the first thing that comes to mind is a big legislative win that I had with uh, Jane Adams Senior Caucus, uh, our Jane Adams Seniors in Action. And this was at the beginning of the pandemic when we were all really scared and didn't know what to expect. And so many of our senior residents um felt really vulnerable and they felt like they were being kind of left you know hung out to dry um and i was able to organize with some of our community members um not just here in the ward but around the city um, for a senior safety ordinance to create some additional protections for them um, more rights for how they could control uh, who had access to their housing yeah one of the first big pieces of legislation i got to work on and being really responsive to our community so definitely one for me I love, and I love Jane Adams. They are awesome. Uh, we actually placed their uh, current ED there. So um, they are, it's like, do not mess with Jane Adams. Okay. <laughs> no. No, that's like, that's like politician lesson one in Chicago. They ask Absolutely. you, do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Kelly, what, what is one of the most satisfying and fulfilling moments in your career up to now as a, as an elected official? You know, I, I mean, I've passed some major groundbreaking legislation and everybody always assumes it's going to be one of those. And the truth is there have been two bills in my career where within days of implementation, I heard that lives were saved as a result. And the first was my very first bill, which implemented a good Samaritan policy for folks seeking uh, 911 uh, assistance in the case of an overdose, you would be immune from prosecution. And within a couple of days of that becoming law, I heard from two family members whose children were in the hospital recovering. Um, and then earlier this year with my, my good buddy, Maria, um, we, we represent the same area. Um, we finally got the Chicago Park District to stop fighting 
requests from our constituents to put life rings along the lakefront. And we are now the first Great Lakes state to actually mandate life rings um, on our lakes. And again, the day after they went up, somebody got pulled out of the lake and is alive and, and completely anonymous, right? Like there's no, there was no trauma. He, he, got, he got out and he went about his life and that's how it should be. So those moments where it, very few jobs give you that. Um, so for sure. Andrea, yeah. what would you say? Oh boy. I don't know if you guys know this. I think you do, but George Floyd got murdered in my district. Oh. Um, so I, I represent that very community and I'm hoping that at the end of my career that we will have done something amazing to honor uh, his life and so many others who have lost their lives to state violence, Laquan McDonald, um, uh, Sandra Bland, I mean, you know, the list we all know is is very long. Mm -hmm. And and that, and I, I started working on that before George Floyd was uh, murdered. That, and hopefully that will be a part of the legacy that I leave. But I, I have to go back to the pandemic too. Um, we, right before the pandemic hit, we were working on this project that we call um, cultural corridors. And we created these cultural corridors and some of the, the, um, the lenses that we use was ACP50 or areas of concentrated poverty and how they coincided with um, other census tract indicators of policy of um, poverty and we created these cultural corridors where we could have greater investment in communities, primarily communities of color, low-income communities. So then when the pandemic did hit and we got that first CARES Act funding, we were able to distribute those very meager funds. Uh, I think we got $5 million uh, in, in Minneapolis, you know, during that first okay. mm -hmm. sort of wave of the, the pandemic. And um, we were able to distribute that money to those cultural corridors. And so now we took a lot of heat, right? Because that's equity. And a lot of people were saying, oh, equality. I, I got a, <laughs> I got a restaurant that I've been running. Like I need to, you know, this is what the white guys and the, the wealthier parts of our city were saying, but we were able to say, no, we, we know that this is where the dollars will have the greatest impact and the, and there's the most need. And so, um, I was one of the lead authors on that, um, on those cultural corridors, that ordinance. And um, I'm really proud. And it's still uh, a place where we invest heavily. We created uh, what we call our commercial development investment fund to help small business owners, people of color business owners actually purchase their buildings as well as own the business. 
creating more equity and wealth and hopefully creating generational wealth for years to come. So Cultural Corridors is, I think, one of my proudest moments so far. We did declare racism as a public health crisis. That was a biggie. Um, as well as created a truth and reconciliation process. But I, I won't name those yet because we haven't seen the fruits yet. <laughs> uh, but we are, we are working towards those as well. I love your commitment to the, the very unsexy data-driven policy work. It's <laughs> underappreciated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All very important. Everything you, you all have stated, very, very important. Uh, wishing you the best as you continue that work. And the very last question, and just want a quick answer. One, what would you say to someone who's thinking about running for office? What is the one thing you would tell them? This is that rapid fire question. What would you share with somebody who's thinking about it, nervous? Kelly? Be unafraid. Be unafraid. Maria? Well, I'm gonna go off of Kelly's thing and just add then, um, be self-aware. Be self-aware. Excellent. Andrea? I will tell them what I told my dear friend, uh, Precious Brady Davis, when we run, we win. Amen. Just the act of running, you are winning. Absolutely. Wonderful, wonderful way to end this conversation. Thank you so very much. We want to thank State Representative Kelly Cassidy, Council President Andrea Jenkins, and Alderwoman Maria Hatton for joining us on this episode of Gathering Ground. Until next time, I'm Mary Morton. 